Uh, we are joined momentarily by Trey Lockerbie from the Investors Podcast. Uh, I'm throwing him in the in the fire a little bit, so don't don't stress Trey. I apologize on my end because I did not copy and paste uh, certain things correctly, so I apologize. Full transparency, um, we, we are live. I think you sound great, Chris. Do you agree with me or not? We're gonna let our our viewers actually get a taste of what this looks like or feels like. Uh, when we're on a commercial break, we are doing a sound check. Um, Trey, how are you doing today? Sorry, you just cut out there. Do, do I sound all right? You sound good. Thanks, Trey. Okay, good. <laughs> you said uh, you're on a commercial break, is that what you said? Or are we, uh, no, we're we, are, we're we are back. Oh, okay, we, we're, just go. Go, we're just going for it. Today's been a little, uh, little bit of a nuts day, to say the least, between a few fires to put out in the morning. Thank you, everyone who joined us an hour later than we usually start. Uh, my apologies for sending you the wrong Zoom link as well. I really appreciate you hopping on, Trey. Uh, a, a huge fan of your show, as you have it a little blurred in the background, the We Study Billionaires show with the TIP team. Uh, first, talk to us a little bit about the show. Uh, what do you guys, what do you and Stig typically talk about there? Yeah, great question. So the show primarily face, uh, focuses on I would say micro investments, although in the last few years, macro has just become sort of uh, undeniably important, even for us folks who started out as value investors who really just want to focus on micro, we're finding it harder and harder to do so. That's fair. I mean, I'm, I'm more of a growth investor myself, and I'm curious sort of why, what draws you more to value investing and why has that been your sort of strategy? Without, I'm not trying to be like your strategy sucks. Full transparency. <laughs> well, I will. I will say this much. Um, you know, Buffett would be the first person to say that he's not a value investor, right? He's just an investor. And I actually try to ascribe myself uh, the same uh, definition, basically. Um, but I definitely got started out studying Buffett, and that's how I found the show to begin with. Uh, they were really uh, steeped in the Buffett philosophy early, early on, and still are. Um, in fact, ironically, uh, so if you, uh, talk to Preston, you'll, if you really go down the, the rabbit hole with him, you'll find that he's, uh, just waiting for the day to become a value investor again, once we have sound money. <laughs> so anyway, I mean the principles, um, you know, as Buffett would also say, if your principles have an expiration date, they're not principles and value investing principles have no expiration date. I mean, it's, it's simply a matter of buying low, selling high, or just buying and holding forever. Um, there are caveats alongside that, but I think fundamentally speaking, investing is just laying out money now to get more in the future and value invested value investing fundamentally is just speaking to that. Um, thank you for making my job very easy Trey, because I do want to, on a Bitcoin show, talk to you about Bitcoin. You mentioned sound money. You mentioned the idea of sort of keeping your investment or an investment vehicle is sort of how we grow our money that we have earned moving over to the Bitcoin side of it, A, talk to me about like, what was your instinct when you heard about Bitcoin? Like I'm an investor type. When I first heard about Bitcoin in 2013, cause I wanted to send weed to myself in college. I literally was like, what? Like, why can't I just like PayPal? Like, come on, dude, what is this shit? Yeah. So I, you know, I was probably pretty skeptical, although I like to keep an open mind for the most part. And I did buy some around 2016, 2017. It was more of like a infinitesimal, like just a, just a, I mean, really small amount of uh, Bitcoin just to kind of learn about it, uh, which is sometimes how I like to get started in something. And 
I guess I found it and it started speaking to me because as I was growing my own business and investing and trying to become an adult and do all the adult type things, buy a home and all these other things, you just couldn't help but feel like things were accelerating away from you. And I think everyone uh, is experiencing that right now. And, um, you know, we're all taught about capitalism, right? Which is, you know, if you, if you start out in school, you're learning about the lemonade stand, right? That's what everyone starts with. You're, you're selling some, some lemonade, you're making a little bit of money, net profit, you're saving that up, you use it to buy another lemonade stand and that makes more money. And everyone's like, great, yeah, we live in a capitalistic society. And as you kind of uh, get in, let's say we just start value investing, right? And you're waiting for those opportunistic times where you can buy low and sell high. But all of a sudden you start realizing that those buy low moments aren't coming. <laughs> and when all of the economic factors are there uh, to validate that they should be lower. And I think that's where, you know, as you're kind of getting into investing and going down that, you start questioning a lot of things because you're like, well, everything I know and have learned about capitalism uh, is not actually showing up in reality here. And the reason that is, is because, you know, in 1971, we went off the gold standard completely and we begin creditism, you know, using the Richard Duncan term. And that basically means that, you know, we're not taking our net profits anymore to go buy another lemonade stand. We are financing that lemonade stand, right? And we are using a fractional reserve to do so. And so we now have just credit beyond belief and, you know, I guess not to go too long-winded here, but to get into Bitcoin, it starts becoming more and more appealing the more that you understand that your purchasing power is going down and the returns you're going to make on your investments are going down with it. Uh, I'm curious too, because I feel like every Bitcoiner at a certain point has to answer the question of what is money and what are those properties of money? Uh, talk to us a little bit about sort of that journey and if there were certain properties that really stood out to you as far as Bitcoin being sort of that soundest, purest form of money? Well, to be honest, I don't even know if I consider Bitcoin money in the way that I think you're describing it right now. I mean, my, my initial, the initial appeal of Bitcoin to me, and even to this day, was the sort of advertisement of it being a digital gold, et cetera. And I still like that a lot because I know it's kind of getting like an outdated uh, version, the, the more that we're seeing the rise of Bitcoin happening. But what I think people don't actually realize is Bitcoin wasn't really set up to solve for transactions. It was really set up to as a hedge against this debasement of our own currency, this, this currency default that we're basically in. So it's an off-ramp. It's an exit ramp to the, to the currency. And I don't think what's appreciated enough is just how strong the network effect of the US dollar actually is, right? Basically 60% of the entire market cap of money in the world is the US dollar. The next is Europe at 20%, the, the yuan is 6%. So we are light years away as far as that hegemony we have with the US dollar. It's gonna be really hard to disrupt that. So is there a world where you know uh, Bitcoin just surpasses all those other currencies, becomes a world reserve currency, and we all transact in Bitcoin? forever beyond there. I mean, I'm not ruling it out. It's very, very possible, but there are a lot of incentives at play to go against that. And given the network effect that the US dollar has, I see more of a stopgap at least scenario where you are using Bitcoin as an off-ramp for storing your wealth uh, while you're still transacting in US dollars, because that is the basically the network that is in play. And it's going to be, I think, 
very hard to disrupt in the near term. That's an unpopular opinion, I think, for a lot of Bitcoiners especially. But um, I mean, we could talk about all the incentives uh, unfolding quicker than I even expected. Uh, if you talk about Russia and even India and some of these other things at play. But uh, yeah, I do think that that isn't as appreciated as much as just how long this could actually take to play out. And I could be wrong. No, I, I think you're valid in what you're saying. And I don't think enough Bitcoiners sort of spend the time to really appreciate that. Um, I'm curious, what do you envision is going to be that trigger? What is going to be sort of the thing that gets us at least over the yuan or over the euro where it's now being used to a degree where it's on par with being a global type of currency? Yeah, I mean, it could very well be the fact that you know, we just cut off Russia from the SWIFT system and they're highly incentivized <laughs> to find something else. I mean, so these actions that have, you know, second and tertiary effects uh, that I don't think we really fully that out um, are happening today. And I mean, look, every other country in the world is incentivized to adopt something other than the US dollar. So I'm not saying that's not true. Um, especially I think their eyes are open now that we're, you know, establishing sanctions and just taking people's wealth away from them, other countries' wealth, I mean. So the incentives could exponentially increase or the interest could exponentially increase. Um, I think to answer your question, I think it would take the U.S. uh, adopting Bitcoin in a much bigger way. And I don't rule that out either. I mean, I think that if you, their actions to date are only, uh, I think, bullish in that regard, right? They're, they're, they're trying to do what Yellen just said the last week. I think we want to have healthy regulation around crypto. I mean, this is a very different drumbeat than I think you would hear even a year ago. And I think that's because they understand that we are in a currency default right now. And by a currency default, I mean, like we will never default on our debt, but our money will just, uh, purchasing power will just continue to decrease from here. And at some point, the U.S. will have a credit worthiness issue in the world, right? Where people are going to say, well, I've been lending the U.S. Uh, this money to get paid back in the future, and that money is going to be worth 10x less or whatever it is. I'm going to go somewhere else. And then on top of that, you have inflation running rampant, not only in the U.S., but all over. That's creating real negative yields all over the world, right? And so right now in the U.S., you're getting a 5.5% negative real yield uh, if you're holding our treasury bonds, how long can that persist right before people start saying, well, I'm guaranteed to lose money by sitting on this asset. So, but this asset over here is appreciating 200% a year. Why don't I allocate a little bit towards that? And that is, I think how it starts. Um, and once the U S does, I think create some quote unquote healthy regulation around it, then you're going to start to see institutional adoption around it. Then I think you're going to see much more of a normal allocation to Bitcoin from everybody. Um, but you know, sovereign wealth funds might get their first, we'll see. There are a couple directions I can go, but I, I kind of want to stay on the legislative path if you don't mind being uh, me asking a couple speculative questions. Um, if like right now, one of the pieces of news is Russia has said from friendly countries, we'll accept Bitcoin for our oil. Um, if Russia were to turn around and maybe in the next month or so adopt Bitcoin either as legal tender or just simply legalize it, does that inhibit or expedite what the U.S.'s pro-Bitcoin stance could look like? Well, I think the broader picture there on that question is that I think the world is waking up to the fact that 
energy is the real money, right? That's the real power in the world. And by cutting off Russia's money to US dollars, but them still having access to the oil and, that, and natural gas that they have, um, they still have a lot of ammunition on the currency front, and a lot of power leverage. So I think just that alone, people waking up to the fact that, you know, oil is highly underinvested in and hydrocarbons are highly underinvested in. And there's going to be, I think, a long road to get back to normalcy when the, and that commodity, especially, which is going to create all kinds of things, right? The rise of oil is going to create the demand and acceleration, I think, of batteries and lithium and all kinds of other commodities. And basically, um, I think that could wake people up to the fact that energy, that Bitcoin is, you know, digital energy and it's its own commodity in a certain sense. Um, you know, I kind of compared it to gold earlier, but that's kind of how I look at it. It's, it's sort of a, it's going to be a global reserve asset, I think, uh, before it even becomes a global reserve currency. Talk to us a little bit too, like there was an announcement last week about ExxonMobil after ConocoPhillips has already said that they're going to mine Bitcoin with some of their energy excess. There's been a, a lot of conversation of this sort of, where does the decade, the end of this decade lead us to do these traditional powerhouse oil, gas, energy companies turn around and adopt Bitcoin mining into their business folds, or the Bitcoin mining businesses just become so vast and encompassing that they're just going to absorb and eat up these energy companies. Um, talk to us about these sort of dominoes falling here and what the end game could look like in your mind. Well, my hope for that is that it changes the narrative around Bitcoin's environmental, you know, uh, uh, rep, uh, ramifications. I mean, that I think is is more mainstream that concern than I think a lot of Bitcoiners recognize. If I ask my wife, for example, uh, why she doesn't buy Bitcoin, she says oh, it's bad for the environment. I mean, that's that's in the zeitgeist right now, and that uh, narrative needs to change. And I think by giving that uh, example of where someone like you know a company like Exxon could you know, instead of off-gassing their methane, just convert it into other energy that's mining Bitcoin and repurpose it and not have that go into the atmosphere, that will wake a lot of people up to the fact that, hey, there are other utility cases for Bitcoin. And maybe it's not as environmentally damaging as I thought. In fact, it might be the opposite. And so that could accelerate some global adoption right there. So I think it's, it's a very bullish thing. I also, you know, that's what we that's just what's been published. I wonder if other companies out there are already experimenting and not publishing yet. Um, and the more that that comes out, I think the biggest impact will be that it'll change that narrative that I think is holding a lot of people back. Um, talk to us a little bit without getting yourself in trouble with your wife of like, when she <laughs> says that, what was your response or what is your response? Well, you know, I'm not an expert on the calculations by any means of like what the consumption of Bitcoin is. But I do believe that it's very easy to uh, miscalculate that. And for example, if you're comparing it to the U.S. dollar, let's say, you know, if you're going to um, equal weight them, you have to you have to calculate everything we're doing to keep the U.S. dollar in place, right? So, for example, we're spending seven hundred billion dollars on our military every year, right? And that is basically so that we can have uh, stations pointing guns at people who are pulling oil out of the ground saying prices in US dollars. I mean, that is a expense, right? That our US government has that ties into the weight uh, of cost of running this currency. So if you're going to compare the two, you have to do it holistically. 
And I would say that that's something that no one is doing, right? <laughs> They're just simply uh, taking whatever math they're seeing on paper uh, and probably extrapolating it out. And uh, so I think it's just inherently flawed in that way. No, I, I love that argument. Um, I'm, I use something similar to that. My favorite has been very recently though. How much energy do you think it takes to maintain every single ATM machine around the country? Now, how much energy does that all those ATM machines around the world take up? Not going to be more than Bitcoin. I can promise you that. I'm still waiting for one of our fans out there to uh, do the math so that I don't have to do that work, guys. Please don't make me do that work. It's going to be a lot. Um, <laughs> that to other people. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the billionaire push, but also tie it back into the institutional buyers we're seeing. Michael Saylor, in the midst of the 2020 pandemic, really set the stage for that. MicroStrategy being one of the first publicly traded companies to start buying a Bitcoin. He also is personally stacking some stats. Other companies have also followed. I'm curious in your mind first, is there a difference between a billionaire allocating 1% of their net worth into Bitcoin versus a uh, publicly traded company allocating their cash reserves towards Bitcoin, buying up essentially the same amount? Yeah, I think there's a certifiable difference. And that's, that's basically that a billionaire... I think it's public perception mostly, right? So a billionaire putting some small allocation into Bitcoin um, can be easily kind of waved off, right? And say, hey, well, they got to where they were by taking on risk. I'm not that risk. I'm more risk adverse. Um, and I think it's just a little bit easier to write it off because you know that's how billionaires got to where they are. But a company or a sovereign wealth fund or you know something like that entering the picture is much more, I think, a verification of just the thesis involved. And it'll, it'll at least, I think, peak more interest um, and curio- curiosity. And I think that that has a, not, not to mention the dollars, right? Because they're going to be putting a lot more actual dollars to work in Bitcoin than you know, a single billionaire would. But I think beyond that, it's just a matter of, um, I mean, look, just look at how many people perked up when El Salvador <laughs> said, hey, guess what? We're going to make this legal tender. I mean, this is this is that's what gets the the headlines and the attention, not so much, you know, um, if Druck and Miller puts a small allocation into it. Do we reach a certain point, or is there like a a percentage in your mind where this company or this individual has too much Bitcoin? Yeah. So listen, to, to answer that question, I would say this. I mean, there's this old Mark Twain quote about you know, it's not what you don't know, it's what you know for sure that just ain't so. And I like to have strong opinions loosely held for that you know, reason. So I'm not out there selling my house to allocate more to Bitcoin, right? Um, I, I, more power to you if that's what you do. But I think in any uh, practice, if you are 100% convinced on something, um, I would question it, right? And so there are, for me, I, I think a reasonable, responsible allocation to Bitcoin whatever that means for you. And it's, it's different for every single person is I think the pragmatic way to approach it. Um, You know, if the theories pan out, we're all, you know, not long enough. Right. But at the same time, the arguments I sometimes see for that are that, Hey, there's $700 trillion of, you know, assets in the world. If all of that goes into Bitcoin, then Bitcoin's worth 10 million, whatever, you know? So it's, the world in which all of those assets, everyone sells their house, everyone sells their gold, everyone does X, Y, Z and funnels it into Bitcoin. Um, I just have a hard time picturing that. 
So can it overtake gold? Can it do a few other things that I think are, are more realistic in the short term? Yes, I absolutely think so. Um, so it's, uh, for me personally, it's a savings vehicle. I allocate every week. I dollar cast average into it. Um, for me, I still look at it like digital New York real estate, right? There's some building there in New York that I can buy weekly and I can dollar cast average into that. If someone told you you could do that with a, you know, uh, a building in New York, you would do it immediately. So I still look at it that way. Um, I'm less concerned about, again, the transactions, although I'm fully bullish on the lightning network and I'm um, in the coming years, but to me, looking at it more of an asset and just treating it as such, like you would a gold or real estate as portion of your portfolio, I think is the responsible way to look at it. Um, I, I always love the digital real estate argument in case that it, it's, I think the best use case for what Bitcoin can be for those who maybe don't see it. Um, I also do appreciate the fact that you're not necessarily buying into the hype cycle. I think, unfortunately, in Bitcoin, we tend to be a bit of an echo chamber. Uh, we put price predictions ahead of market cap. As someone who comes from like a traditional investing mindset, one of the first things I was always taught was, you think the stock can double from here. That's fine and great. But what does that actually mean for the market cap? Do you right. really think this company is going to be it's trading at $5 billion? Do you really think this is a $10 billion company? And why or why not? We don't do that enough in Bitcoin. A 10X from here doesn't even get us more than a market cap of gold. So keep that in mind. That We're talking about a half million dollar Bitcoin. You're still not above the market cap of gold. I personally think that is sort of the next resistance once we get over some of the psychological round numbers like six figures, quarter of a million dollars, and so, et cetera. Um, what, are you, what are you paying attention to Maybe this might be a little too technical, but price-wise, are there certain areas of resistance that you have an eye on, um, either market cap-wise or just individual Bitcoin's price? Well, look, I mean, I think uh, this is an interesting discussion because when reality sets in, um, I think people be people's behavior uh, becomes more to light. So for example, a war breaking out in between Russia and Ukraine, gold shot up, right? And so that's, um, I think gold still has a long way to run, by the way. And I think that when you start factoring in real world scenarios that people feel their safety is, you know, in play, um, I think there is still a overhanging belief that gold is the, the, you know, flock to safety. And at the same time, there's an argument to be made that, uh, Bitcoin isn't higher because we have NFTs now. We have all these other altcoins that are eating up some of the liquidity that could have been funneling into Bitcoin, right? I think that that's a very real possibility. And those things probably aren't going away anytime soon either. So there's a lot out there that could be distracting people away from Bitcoin. Um, now, given the scarcity of Bitcoin, once even a small percentage of like we said, sovereign wealth funds, whatever it might be, start going into Bitcoin, the price will have a more accelerated increase, right? Just because of the, the denominator, the, the lack of the scarcity there. So that price appreciation will probably recapture a lot of imagination and a lot of attention and be sort of a self-reinforcing effect from there. Um, but so, yeah, I'm looking at all kinds of stuff. I mean, gold, I think silver is still like uh, limping along, but probably the most asymmetric play out there. I think oil, ha oil has a long way to go. Um, I think just a basket of commodities in general. I mean, 
Ukraine and Russia account for, you know, the New York Times was writing about how they account for 25% of the wheat in the world that feeds billions of people and goes into bread and pasta and everything else. And there is going to be a serious shortage of that coming up, which could affect food pricing. And so agricultural food, all kinds of those commodities in the, in the near term, I think are be heavily disrupted. And those prices um, are probably going to go a lot higher. My fellow plebs, the Bitcoin conference is back. Bitcoin 2022, April 6th through the 9th, is the ultimate pilgrimage for the Bitcoin ecosystem. The Bitcoin conference is the biggest event in all of Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. We're leveling up and making this bigger and better than ever. I'm talking straight to the moon with the four-day-long festival in the heart of Miami at the Miami Beach Convention Center. This has something for everyone. Whether you're a high-powered Bitcoin entrepreneur, a core developer, or a Bitcoin newbie, Bitcoin 2022 is the ultimate place for you to be with your people and celebrate and learn about the Bitcoin culture. So make sure to go to b.tc forward slash conference to lock in your official tickets and use promo code Satoshi for 10% off. Want more off? Pay in Bitcoin and you'll receive $100 off general admission and $1,000 off whale pass. Those are stackable. So go to b.tc forward slash conference and attend the best conference in Bitcoin history. Uh, I have to present the question that I presented to Preston uh, to you as well. Is there a commodity, and it, it could very well be wheat, that you are paying very close attention to right now that's not oil? Darn, it's not oil. Um, well, yeah, listen, I think it's food. I think it's agriculture. Um, I think that, you know, it's funny, like um, the CPI numbers, right? It's, <laughs> I love when they say, well, if you just take out food and energy, you know, inflation's not that bad. It's, <laughs> well, what do you spend your money on? Well, it's food and energy, right? So if you're taking away the energy, the oil, then it's left, you know, you're left with the food. And given the disruptions I just mentioned, food pricing is probably going to go a lot higher. I mean, uh, and with oil going higher, I mean, oil is the number one cost with food, right? Because you're mostly shipping all of that stuff across seas. So um, that is a reinforcing impact as well. So I think food uh, and agricultural um, ETFs are a good way to play it. I mean, a lot of people I talk to, um, you know, Bill Gates owns $100 million worth of farmland now. Um, Kyle Bass also has a fund now set up just for rural land, farmland. And they do, they're doing that because the, the actual production coming off that land is increasing in value, right? The dollars. Um, so I think that food and any kind of agricultural uh, commodity ETF is a probably a good place to, to watch. Uh, I definitely agree with that. I, I brought it up on this show. I will continue to highlight this because it is genuinely a global crisis that is just getting swept under the rug. You touched on it briefly with the idea that this is... This region, Ukraine and Russia, is the breadbasket of the world. Um, I'm stealing these numbers from David Friedberg from the All In episode uh, two weeks ago. This is amounts to roughly 40% of the wheat that is produced in the world. But if you also look at the caloric intake of that, that is about 12% of the calories in the entire world. That wheat was supposed to be planted two weeks ago. And it's not being planted because they're getting bombed and they're in the midst of a war. We only have enough food for a 90-day cycle. That's just how our food processes and the supply chain there works, unfortunately. So I have 
don't have my tinfoil hat with me right now at the moment. Apologies, fam. But tinfoil hat time. I think when Putin is going around saying the plan is working, they're losing. But that's his plan. He is just sowing chaos. We are assuming that this person is a rational human being who is going and entering into a war with a country that he was not at war with to sow chaos, not for his people, not for this region, but for the rest of the world. And he is disrupting the U.S. dollar at a moment where it's weakest because he has been sitting there for the last 10 plus years absorbing up gold. I sound like a conspiracy theorist saying this, and I understand that, and I understand that it may be hard for us sometimes to swallow. Um, but history has proven that there are bad actors around. They just unfortunately do get to these points of power. Um, if if there is a nice round number, like I'm marking 180 days, and I think that that is when actually the war with Ukraine will end. And 180 days after it stopped, that is too convenient of a number for me to believe that this was not fully premeditated, but it's going to come down to this week. And if all the rest of the world, look, we're in America, we're going to sit pretty. Boochcraft is, I mean, uh, sorry. It's not Boochcraft. Better Booch, yeah. Better Booch, thank you. Better Booch is not going to like lose out on their products. You're still, you're, you might be paying more for your supplies and your overhead that you need to brew. We may be paying more for a loaf of bread at the gas, or the gas station, grocery store, wherever we're going, but we're not going to really lose out on that caloric intake. But other parts of the world will. The poorer nations are not going to be given that opportunity to buy up those calories for their citizens to end up buying. And what does that do? What happens if you're not able to put food on the table for your family? Well, you're going to get pretty upset. Let me tell you, I'm a hangry person. You don't want to be around me when I am hangry. I don't want to be around the rest of the world when they're hangry. Um, that is my mini tinfoil hat rant. We're taking that off. Um, well, anyway. I think it. I think it speaks to something that you, I think you're onto something. So, for one. Uh, you know, if you, you know, one billionaire we study a lot on the show is Ray Dalio, right? And he just came out with this book called The Changing World Order. And there is a 18 step cycle that he, he kind of lays out in, uh, in the book. And we are, I mean, by my estimates around number 14 out of 18, you know, 18 being the bottom of the cycle, uh, 14 is printing money. 15 is internal conflict. 16 is loss of reserve currency, 17 is weak leadership, 18 is civil war revolution, right? So the internal conflict, and I think that's what you're kind of bringing up, like, where is that going to stem from? Um, in the US, I think you've seen a little bit of it just through COVID. I think that's probably just the tip of the iceberg. Um, you know, it could be the wealth disparity in the country that ultimately gets to be too much. Uh, right now, like 0.1% of our our uh, you know, country owns the same wealth as the 90, the bottom 90%. Um, that right there is pretty alarming, but you know, there could be more internal conflict that comes and it could come from food shortages or any of these other disruptions that we might see in the near term, which again, um, are probably all symptomatic of the greater piece of the puzzle here, which is this macro view that the U S dollar is collapsing. Um, and you know, you fix the money, you fix the world, as they say. <laughs> Oh man, if only it was, it was so simple. Um, but you, you absolutely bring up a valid point. Like we are, we're on these final acts of some of these sort of, and I, I don't mean to be dire about it, these doomsday scenarios. And it is pertinent for all of us to be sort of aware of where we kind of sit and how to approach certain actions and how to digest the actions of those leaders. 
who are making decisions on our behalf, whether or not we agree with them, they're making those decisions. Like whether or not you like Biden, what he decides to do on a global stage has an impact on you. And it is important for us to be aware and act accordingly. Um, obviously under your own value structure, I will never tell you what to do other than not be an asshole because we're not assholes on this show. Um, I want to talk public markets with you uh, a, a little bit. if you'll entertain that side of this conversation now. Sure. Back, back in November, Bitcoin made an all-time high just under 69,000. Shout out to that number. Guys, if we can get to 69,000 subs, by the way, on the YouTube channel, we are going to drop so many sats. We're going to drop life-changing amounts of sats. But I need to get to that number. Otherwise, I cannot unlock the sats that are sitting in a safe. So please help us share, share make sure you're subscribed. Um, Bitcoin makes this all-time high. Day or two later, NASDAQ and S&P follow suit. And we have essentially been in a bear market. People are a little too cagey around that world. We're in a bear market. The correlation last I checked was about 9.92, 0.91 in that range between Bitcoin and the NASDAQ. Um, talk to us a little bit about what you think is causing this correlation. And is it good or bad for Bitcoin? Is it good or bad for Bitcoin? Well, look, I'm not an expert on this, but my assumption is that you're seeing such a direct correlation because not everyone really understands the potential of Bitcoin and they're treating it like a new technology. And that's why the NASDAQ correlation is where it is. And I think that as people really start to realize that, that this is more about a default of our currency and that this is a much bigger picture, then I think you'll see a decoupling from that. Um, in the near term, it's probably a good thing because I only see more money printing coming and that QE will then fuel asset prices to continue to rise. So Bitcoin should go along with that if that's the case. Um, and I would probably see the decoupling happen about the time that, you know, we're seeing maybe some more severe adoption um, or I would say more severe, uh, you know, um, off-ramping of the US dollar by whoever it is. Um, so in the short term, I think it's a good thing. I, I could be wrong about that, but um, I do think that that's where we're heading. And and I, you know, I know it's supposed to be a head, an inflate, you know, a hedge against when the markets go down. But in reality, everyone typically flocks to cash habitually, just in times of uh, you know concern. And so that's human nature. And I think it's going to take a while for people to understand the idea of oh, I'm going to opt out of the stock to then move it into Bitcoin. I think that that's, um, you know, especially when it's been, you know, so volatile, right? Where it's up 50% um, day to day or down 50%. So I think it's going to take a little bit more time. Um, Bitcoin will have to become less volatile, I think, for people to treat it like a flock to, flock to safety. So in the meantime, it's going to be highly correlated. Do you feel as though it's like, I understand that you I buy into people not understanding it. it's tech. So therefore like it's tech. Oh, my instinct is this is the NASDAQ or a part of the NASDAQ, even if it's not. Uh, even the best investors in Wall Street, they, they genuinely think like that. I am on that same page as you. Uh, but do you think that things like a Bitcoin ETF would make the correlation that much more or would actually help take away and start to separate Bitcoin from those markets? I think it would help. I think it would help only because, I mean, a Bitcoin ETF, in my opinion, um, 
is really only benefiting those who have accounts where they can't buy actual Bitcoin in it, right? Some some types of IRAs, for example. Um, you know, a lot of people are stuck with GBTC, you know, for the unforeseeable future, uh, for better or for worse. So um, I think that, that would increase the adoption of, of Bitcoin because people could, you know, put a small percentage, uh, those who can't currently and don't want to go into something like GBTC um, and just understand the spot price, you know, it's a much more a simple thing to understand. Um, that'll probably just drive adoption into it. And uh, I think it's a lot easier to move your money from an S&P index to an ETF than it is to pull your money out of your TD Ameritrade account to then go on Coinbase to then buy some Bitcoin to then do this, to then do this, you know? So you're basically removing the, uh, you know, the hurdles, right? By creating an ETF. Um, so I think you would see some decoupling uh, once that goes into place. Oof, oof. I love the sound of that. I love the sound of that. I was just quickly buying a little bit. I'm no expert in that. So don't. <laughs> nope. Trey Lockerman <laughs> said it. So therefore it is fact and law. Uh, um, I do want to, one final sort of topic to discuss here in the markets is the Fed. Because um, unfortunately, whenever we talk markets, we got to talk rates and we got to talk the Fed. Two weeks ago, they finally did their first 25 basis points rate hike. Um and the market reacted positively because the market was expecting exactly that. It was not surprised by anything. Bitcoin is looking like it's getting a new leg up. The NASDAQ and SP 500 looks like it's getting a new leg up. Uh, talk to us a little bit about what effect you think the Fed is going to have on the markets this year and as a byproduct on Bitcoin as well. Um, my general thoughts are that the Fed is typically behind the curve and they tend to, to overdo it. So like, should we be tightening right now? There's a lot of, you know, arguments to be made that this is, might be the worst time ever to, to tighten. So, um, you know, at some point, you know, they're trapped and everyone knows they're trapped, um, for a lot of different reasons. I think a lot of it is a little bit of theater. So for example, you know, um, given where inflation is right now, I mean, there's this thing called like the Taylor rule. And that's suggesting that the federal funds rate, for example, should be at 9.5%, right? And we are at 0.33%. So a lot of it is kind of theater. Now, that being said, uh, going from zero, basically to 0.33 uh, on a percentage basis, you know, if you're thinking about holistically how things are actually, uh, all the credit that's out there, it's not a 25 basis move. It's a, it's a almost like infinitesimal move where it's, uh, going to create a lot of, uh, a lot of effects on businesses who have taken out lines of credit and are expecting to, to finance certain things at a certain rate. And that's getting more expensive. So, um, I think it, the more that the fed actually does tighten and increase rates, it is obviously going to have an impact, which is mainly going to be, uh, bearish because everything is priced off of these discount, you know, these interest rates that are used as discount rates and the higher that discount rate goes, then the valuations of the assets go down. And so, um, do I think they're going to be able to do much more than a few hikes before things kind of, uh, uh, you know, revert back or, you know, turn downwards and then they're going to have to uh, go back to their old playbook of printing money. Yeah. I, I think that, I think they maybe have one or two more, um, rate hikes in their toolkit before things get more expensive. So just to give you a reason why that is, you know, every one, per, you know, let's say we have $30 trillion of debt, which our country is getting pretty close to, 
every 1% increase on that interest is $300 billion, right? So we're talking about, uh, you know, 10% of our national budget um, going to interest payments, and that's just untenable, right? So if you're thinking about um, those little, uh, you know, 25 basis points moves, like getting up even to 1%, that's a huge, has huge ramifications, even though they're really, very small basis points. So, um, and not to mention all the other, um, you know, credit lines for companies in corporate America that are financed off of those rates. Um, so yeah, I think the more that they tighten and do that, it's going to have an effect, um, on stock market, on the stock market short term. And then I think, unfortunately, we're going to be stuck with a, a scenario where we can either let the, the stock market collapse and reprice, but that's going to hurt. Uh, you know, we're already at a 133% debt to GDP. And um, by actually letting the wealth effect go down, that's going to decrease spending and spending is a portion of GDP. And, you know, our debt to GDP is just going to look a lot worse. And so I think the Fed is trying to protect against that. Um, and they know that. And so they're basically going to be forced to print more money and um, probably even print enough to keep the yields on bonds, for example, low, um, you know, called yield curve control. And I think that is somewhat of an inevitability here. I'm so scared. <laughs> I'm genuinely like, I, I have such a hard time holding cash right now, but I know in a weird way, like uh, as the markets sort of start to go up, remains to be seen. I'm still very skeptical that this is, we have exited the bear market, full disclosure. Um, Powell is talking about potential like 50 basis point hikes, which I was actually hopeful we would see on this last turn. Um, is there, let me, let me ask you like this. You are now the chairman of the Fed and the way it's designed, what you want to do is going to happen. On the next opportunity to raise rates or whatever, you want to do? What does that look like? What is Trey Lockerbie's plan for the rest of 2022 look like as far as rate hikes go? Well, I certainly would not want to have that job. So it, <laughs> it's really, um, easy to be like an armchair quarterback there, but I, I definitely do not want that job. And um, I think that they are basically facing down a few, like the worst of a bad decisions, or what's the best of worst decisions, I guess. So um I think what they're doing with these 25 basis point hikes, um, I don't know if I would actually change anything. Right? I, I understand the logic of why they're doing it. They have to do something as far as you know, trying to combat inflation. You know, unemployment's already low, so their dual mandate, you know, 50% of it is covered. So now it's just inflation they have to go after in their mind, right? So basically, by that's the only tool in their toolkit, right? You know. Uh, I would say, you know, raising the rates, obviously, and then tapering off the um, just, you know, buying of, of other assets that they've, they have been tapering that too. So um, just decreasing the liquidity in the system and increasing these rates from their mind, I think that they have to do what they're doing. I think, um, I think there's a little bit of that Wizard of Oz effect where the curtain is pulled and you see the guy, you know, pulling all the levers. I mean, that's what would happen if they did nothing right here. I think with inflation being where it is, I think they're the, the, you know, the, the public perception is a real risk here because the worst thing that could happen is in their mind is obviously if people start uh, losing faith in the U S dollar. Right. And that's what they're trying to protect against. So they have to do what they're doing. And I think it's like the, I think they're doing the minimal amount um, 
because they know that they really shouldn't be doing anything at all. I'm curious what your thoughts are on this. And I will admit this idea maybe came to me when I had had one too many puffs of a joint. Uh, but the yield curve itself started pricing in six 25-point basis hikes for this year ahead of the first announcement of such. So that tells me the market was already planning for this. And then the Fed did just what the market asked it to do, which frankly, I just think the market should operate on its own. But going down that sort of thought, that kind of tells me like, why, why don't we just let the market dictate what these sort of rates should look like? Don't, don't Do not give this power to the Fed. Don't give it to the government. Let the market itself dictate it. Um, I don't know if you necessarily agree that that is a, a way that the markets can operate where the monetary policy itself is just allowed to operate as it should, but would love your thoughts on sort of that hypothetical. They can't do that. I mean, they can't because if the interest rates get too high, then the interest rate on our debt gets too high and becomes untenable. And that's, that's just where we are. So for example, if we, you know, uh, you know, let's say in the 19, well, like, let's just say when basically Paul Volcker came in and jacked up interest rates, we were able to do that because our debt to GDP was 30%, right? So now we're at 133%, right? So we don't have that in our tool belt anymore. Um, and so we're just in a completely different, uh, we were also, by the way, in a position where we could pay, you know, we were at 106% GDP at uh, a certain point that we were able to pay off and they say in the 1940s after the world war, but we were able to pay that down because we had the surplus with many countries that were just, you know, decimated. So we're not in that position right now. And so they can't let that happen um, because it would basically bankrupt our country. So um, unfortunately, I mean, I would love that. We would all love that. I think we're all free and open market, you know, capitalists at heart here. And that's what we want to see. But that ship sailed in 2000 and you know, eight, 2009, um, when quantitative easing and a few of these other things went into effect. And so we're, we're at the, the bottom of this cycle, um, or nearing it. And now here's one on other, maybe unpopular opinion. One other popular opinion, I think is that as we, in this cycle, China becomes the next rise of power and that starts a whole new cycle, but I'm not convinced that the U S can't start a whole nother cycle. Right of becoming the um, the next the hedge money for the next hundred years. I don't think you can rule that out. I think everyone's just assuming there's a rise of China, and they're and they're probably right, right? <laughs> but I think uh, selfishly, um, part of me is thinking about uh, you know how much longer the U.S. can can thrive, and um, you know, so I think just I'm running long here on this on this answer, but uh, I do think that this can play out a lot longer than people anticipate. Um, even though the Fed is in the position they're in. Yeah, uh, Trey, I think um, a lot of good stuff coming out of you. Now, transitioning more from macro, maybe into your environment of micro. So obviously, uh, I was a big listener of the Investors Podcast as well. Uh, you know, it's Stig and Preston and all that. And even since you have come on, uh, obviously in 2020, a lot of events happened that changed the lives of many people. And uh, I know in the quarterly mastermind talks that I was used to listen to, Preston brought up Bitcoin and then he ended up bringing it up again in June and then ultimately broke off and created his own podcast. Uh, what, how much of a, of a discussion was it when he brought it up to you and the other creators or other people at the company that you'd be changing your strategy to more of a Bitcoin reserve strategy? Like, were you guys on board with that or against it or for it? Or I guess, uh, what was the consensus with you and the other people um, there? Great question. So, uh, you know, I, 
I, when I was brought on, it was mainly because Preston's interest in Bitcoin kind of became all consuming. And I don't think he had much interest in public markets because in his opinion, they're not free and open anymore. And so how can you really educate people on value investing and things like that when the market itself is as manipulated as it is? And it's a very fair point. Um, and I think we saw the, the need for that service to go and educate people on Bitcoin because um, it, it, there's just nothing like it, uh, full stop, right? And so there's basically um, a responsibility, I think everyone felt uh, to, you know, we're in the education business. And I think we wanted to educate people on something we thought is very, very important. At the same time, like I said earlier, the principles of value investing won't ever expire. Meaning, um, you know, given that we're in a non-manipulative market and even when, you know, obviously there's still opportunities you can find today, but the point being is when I was brought on, I think the idea was to try and get, uh, we study billionaires back to its roots a little bit more studying actual billionaires, um, studying more value investing philosophies, things of that nature. Um, whereas, you know, as you mentioned, like on a lot of those, uh, uh, macro discussions that were always my favorite, right. Um, it, it was, there was a divergence happening a little bit and there was a divergence happening, I think in our listenership as well. So for example, um, at, at the Bitcoin conference a year ago, uh, when I was there, we met so many people that listened to the show, but almost, you know, a lot of people were like, Oh, I don't listen to your episodes. I listen to Preston's. Right? So there, there was a bit of a dichotomy and divergence there, uh, just in the listenership that we needed to service. And so, um, I think that at some point, and hopefully nowadays, um, there's more of a blend. Uh, now I think, you know, as time goes on and you start to see that, um, value investing will come back into play or just investing in general, will come back into play. Um, that, that blend will come back. Um, you know, so that might take a decade or so, but anyway, so I think, um, that was the philosophy and, and to be quite honest, I don't run the network. So, uh, that's a better question maybe for Stig as <laughs> I'm speculating. Yeah. And that actually leads me perfectly in my next question. So I know, uh, you know, I'm a Warren Buffettite as well, or, you know, I strongly believe in his principles and, uh, maybe not value investing is, um, you know, a strategy that you always have to stick to. You're just kind of, we're all investors, but obviously, uh, using like the discounted cash flow models or models that are very similar that Ben Graham used of evaluating things and then buying things that you think are, uh, fairly priced that are good businesses long-term. So I guess, how do you go about doing it? Do you use kind of more of Bitcoin as your base? Do you do it with cash and Bitcoin? Do you do it like a combination of the two, or are you just trying to look um, and just keep it more broad and you don't know what's going to win. So you do keep more of like the index as Buffett has said in his later years, just kind of the index strategy. So I'll, I'll borrow um, Preston's, you know, trademark uh, sentence here, which is basically how do you measure inflation? Because I think what you have to do nowadays is look at what you spend your money on and, and what lifestyle you want to live and understand the appreciation of those things and create, you know, the, understand what those buckets are. And that's how you get your own discount rate. So for example, like travel, like we love to travel. Um, there's a few other things that, you know, you could put, you could measure, for example, like we own a home. So real estate maybe isn't as much what we're, we're targeting, but um, you have to kind of fundamentally understand that you're investing your money to outpace inflation, right? That's kind of the whole purpose of the monetary system we're in today, right? That is basically why investment is what it is. So I think you have, it's a very individualized 
question, but how do you measure inflation? How do you literally, you personally measure inflation? Because that is going to become your hurdle rate and become your discount rate uh, at the same time. So I don't look at Bitcoin's uh, return as an opportunity cost. I don't look at the uh, market. I definitely don't look at the 10 year. I basically just come up with my own benchmark. Um, that's, you know, probably in the 15% range right now um, that I look for, for opportunities and you can find them. And I think that's, you know, whether uh, it plays out like it used to, uh, or in the time frame it used to, it, we'll see, but there are opportunities out there. And um, even in equities, I do think, you know, there's that potential greater risk given the currency underneath it. And that's, that's the big question mark is just what is the timeline of that playing out? And that's, uh, that's just, you know, above my pay grade. What is not above your pay grade, however, is the company that you founded, Better Booch. Uh, it's actually one of the things I genuinely admire and look up to you as someone who keeps a full-time job, maintains a show, and then at the same time is an entrepreneur in their free time building out a business. Uh, have to start and ask, is Better Booch on the Bitcoin standard? Well, Better Booch accepts Bitcoin. <laughs> so if you go to betterbooch.com, you can definitely buy some. And we have had some people do it, which is really cool. Um, I'm actually, you know, in a similar fashion, not planning on spending that Bitcoin. So any Bitcoin that does come in for Better Booch is just going to sit on our balance sheet. And uh, and I, I don't ever expect that to become a very big thing. But I uh, that's how I look at it. And I felt like, the you know, I felt the responsibility to offer that and have that as a business too. So um, could there be more uh, synergies between Bitcoin and uh, Better Booch down the road? Like possibly. Um, you know, in my dream scenario, we'd have a solar panel, uh, carbon zero facility that, you know, uses excess energy to, to mine some Bitcoin or whatever, you know, so there could be other elements of that, um, down the road, but, you know, it's funny, like I, um, typically try to spend my time on things that I, I think are going to be around forever. And tea, for example, I think is going to be around forever. Kombucha has been around for thousands of years. Um, and now I think Bitcoin is going to be around forever. So, um, I wouldn't say it's a big focus between the two, but I will say that, you know, going back to Buffett, he says he's a better investor because he's a businessman, better businessman because he's an investor. And that's how I got into all this. I don't think I would be where I am on the investing side if I didn't run my own business. Um, and I try to take all of these learnings from these episodes and these interviews I'm doing and, and incorporate them into running Better Booch. Um, so, yeah, it's funny because in my mind still, there's some, it's like a hard pivot, right? To go from investing to kombucha, but in a lot of ways, it's just business and investing. And that goes much closer hand in hand to your point. So to clarify, cause I did the terrible thing of just diving right into the next topic without like giving those of you who are listening and watching a little bit of color and background, uh, better booch and correct me if I'm wrong, Trey is a kombucha company that you founded and started. Uh, what, what was sort of the inspiration? What led you to it? Um, why? Yeah, good. No, good question. So yeah, um, I have some here. This is a better booch. Looks like this. It's in a can. Um, my wife and I were touring musicians, and uh, I won't, I won't, I'll truncate the story down. But basically, what a lot of people don't realize is when you're a touring musician, you're just sitting around a lot. You're waiting in green rooms on buses or planes, and you're just kind of sitting there, um, traveling or whatever. So there is a lot of thought to, is this how I want to spend my time first and foremost? And also how can I be making more money while I'm just sitting here? So that kind of, those two decisions led me one into investing, 
Um, but also to this idea of, is this how I want to spend my time? And we ultimately both decided separately that, no, that's not how we want to spend the majority of our time. Um, so we were looking to do something, uh, that was still creative and still fun and still felt like a, we could build a community around it. And so, um, you know, the long story short with kombucha, why kombucha? I was actually a kombucha rejector is what we kind of call them now. I tried it and I hated it. Um, my sister was adamant that I drink it because it has a lot of health benefits and she's a, she's a cancer survivor. Um, and it helped her through. So she was adamant. I drink it. And I felt like the only way I could drink it is if I brewed it myself. And once I did that, um, I said, Oh, this is actually pretty great and it can be great. And then I uncovered why all these other brands are kind of on, you know, um, you know, I, I guess unappetizing. So basically, um, it started small, like anything else. We started at farmer's markets and then over the years, it just snowballed and, um, has kind of grown into what it is today. I love that. I love the fact that this came like from the family. There's like a little bit of a, a realness to why you want this to succeed, why you want it to taste good, be healthy. Um, I don't, I don't want to have to dox you. I, I've read some of your threads when you've, where you've shared sort of the background and story. Um, I, I want to play a little fangirly though. What was, what was the band that you guys were touring with? If you don't oh, mind. Um, my, my wife was mostly touring with Rihanna. She was with uh, Rihanna for about four years and a small stint with Selena Gomez after that. Um, I toured with a number of artists, uh, mostly in the singer songwriter realm, like out of Los Angeles or Nashville. Um, the majority of my touring years were probably with, uh, this Australian artist actually named Linka. Um, she's very, uh, popular internationally. Um, she's fairly popular in the U S but not a lot of people know her by name here. Um, she's one of the most, uh, placed artists, meaning her, she has her songs in the most like commercials and movies. <laughs> so, um, you would probably recognize some of her songs. So anyway, I, I toured with a number of folks including my own music. So I did a, a period of a stand of doing my own music as well. So. Um, yeah, that was pretty much really it. sorry. You're going to regret telling me that <laughs> you are going to regret telling me that. Don't look it up. <laughs> I, I'm, just, I'm not even worried about that. There just might now be a guitar in the back room before you go on stage in Miami. Ah, uh, okay. Gotcha. But oh, boy. Before we get into the Miami of it all, um, like I love kombucha. I also like have seen friends try to make it themselves. Um, talk to us a little bit about like the nightmares that you dealt with trying to, you know, brew kombucha. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, um, we've had a number of like blitz scaling efforts at certain stages of the company where, you know, we got a PO from Trader Joe's or something that just was like a 15 X, whatever we were doing at the time. And we had to ramp volumes quickly. And so there have been some like challenging times, uh, where, you know, I found myself, loading a truck with a forklift at 3am, you know, like just trying to get orders out on time. Um, I've really worked every position in the company, which I wouldn't trade for anything. I mean, even in the early days, I was the only, you know, Ash and I would basically be the ones brewing and bottling and mopping and all that. And, and I was the delivery guy and everything else. So it's, it's hard to say what was the most challenging, uh, part of the business. Um, I do have some like painful periods of, you know, compared to like, not compare it, but I could feel when, you know, Elon was launching the model three, for example, instead of it was production hell, like I've definitely been there. I know what that feels like where you're just trying to get liquid into a can and, and nothing's going right. Um, cause that, that's, uh, just how things go when you're scaling. Um, so yeah, I think we're, we've, 
we'll probably have more challenges to come obviously, but where our brewery at least is in a really good spot now where we've got some capacity and we've got things dialed in and uh, all the quality controls in place and the team and everything else. So we're in a, a much better place now. Um, but yeah, it's certainly uh, not without its challenges. Um, is there a favorite flavor that you have that you're like, I can't believe people sleep on this flavor, but I'm all for oh, it. That people sleep on. Well, cause I figured you love them all. I do love them all. I cycle through them. Like right now I'm drinking citrus sunrise, grapefruit, sage, puer tea. Um, I would say we have a fairly new flavor that I think is, um, you know, going to do a lot more in the near term, which is our Island hopper, which basically has citrus and hops in it. Um, that one is, you know, there's a, a big trend right now with non-alcoholic drinks and, uh, non-alcoholic beers. Um, to me, this is the best non-alcoholic beer you could find on the market and it's functional, meaning it's not just like, you know, beer without alcohol in it. Um, it actually has health benefits. So, um, I think people will be quick to adopt that in the, in the near term. Um, there's so many though. You're right. They're all kind of like our kids. Like it's hard to let them go. And, and we have some slower sellers that we just can't let go of like, um, cherry retreat. You know, I think that's a under undervalued one. <laughs> yeah. Um, I want to ask selfishly, I'm taking out a notepad and a pen right now, um, advice you have for people or entrepreneurs who are trying to, you know, start a, their own business as a side hustle. That's a good question. So I think if I were advising somebody, I would, um, this sounds a little cliche maybe, but begin with the end in mind, because that will help dictate your decisions. Um, the way that we got into this business was we had very low aspirations. We really, we've really never thought it would even grow to where it is today. Um, and it was mainly a means to like cover our rent, you know, while we could still do music. I mean, that's, we, we just, so as the snowball kind of picked up, um, you start to have these challenging decisions you have to make, right? Like, oh, should we take outside money? Should we go into this region? Should we take on Walmart? Should we take on this? Um, and if you have an end in mind when you're getting started, that will help those decisions be much easier. Meaning, you know, are you growing something to are you growing something to have a generational, you know, business that you can pass along to your kids? Those create very different playbooks. Um, and then the other thing I would say is go bigger sooner. Because a lot of our challenges we had were because we were trying, we were bootstrapping uh, for the first, you know, five to I think seven years actually we were bootstrapping. Um, and when you're bootstrapping, you know, sometimes you don't have a choice. But we were, you know, if we were brewing in X amount of gallons and we needed to cover PO, we had to trade up to something slightly bigger. Um, with beverage, at least you can scale vertically, meaning the tanks can grow taller. And I would have just started bigger you know, sooner meaning. So when those POs do inevitably come, uh, that you can scale a lot quicker and easier. Um, so that's just one example, I guess I would give. Love that. Thank you for that. Um, I now want to transition over to Miami. Uh, we're all super excited for Miami. If you are not going to be there, what are you doing? Please use code YTMAG to get 10% off your conference tickets. So Chris and I can keep our jobs. You know the drill, you know the rules. Um, Trey is going to be speaking on a panel with Preston, with Mark Moss, yes, Mark Moss, and uh, Jeff Ross. Talk to us a little bit first. Is there a speaker that you are most excited to see or catch while you're down there? Uh, Peter Thiel actually might be my the speaker I'm most excited to see just because I've never really seen him speak in person. Uh, I've been a big fan of his. Uh, if you want to talk about getting started as an investor, I would recommend reading his book, Zero to One, because if you read that book 
and then you still want to do what you think you want to do, then it's a good idea. Meaning, <laughs> you know, um, he really challenges you to think big and um, monopolistically. Right. And so anyway, I think um, I'm excited to see him. I'm excited about the conference in general. The energy last year was just unbelievable. And I don't think there's anything quite like it. I, I mean, the only like comparison that comes to mind is like when I think about Apple and Microsoft in their early days, getting these like having these little conventions with their computers and saying like, this will be in everyone's house one day. And everyone's like, what are you talking about? Like, that's what I feel like is happening at these conferences where you're, you're seeing all these exhibit exhibitors, you know, uh, pitching new, even industries and companies built on Bitcoin. Uh, and there's just so much imagination, so much excitement, uh, so much potential. Um, and the energy is just amazing. Uh, is there a specific industry within the Bitcoin ecosystem that you are paying really close attention to? Yeah, there's, there's two, I think. Uh, one is the lending side of, the, of Bitcoin um, because um, I think the thesis around Bitcoin is to just really never spend it, <laughs> at least in the, the, the next 10 years, probably. So um, in order to not spend it and create liquidity, I think the lending side of that industry is going to be really important. And I'm watching that pretty closely. I think, I'm, I mean, I'm also watching the Lightning Network and Strike and uh, corporations like that who are pioneering, pioneering that space. Um, that's when Bitcoin obviously can become transactional and um, feasible as an actual currency. Um, I think those are the two biggest areas I'm watching right now. Awesome. Um, be sure to catch all of those talks, guys, at the Bitcoin conference. Trey is going to be on this panel with Mark Moss, with his colleague, boss, predecessor. I don't know how you, your impressions relationship is. I have to ask though, did he kind of tell you like, hey, you got to make me look good? Don't ask me to come <laughs> shit up there. No, he did not at all. I mean, Preston, gosh, can I just say that um, what's our relationship like? I mean, I, I, I feel like he's kind of like my big brother in a lot of weird ways. Um, of that. So uh, yeah, I, I mean, I took his job on the show and he's been a, a great mentor in that regard. Um, I will also just say for those who don't know, um, I feel like Preston is one of, even though he's kind of well-known now, he, I still feel like he's just the most under um, appreciated Bitcoiner in the space. I just think the amount of knowledge and, and wealth of wealth of knowledge and um, content he's bringing on the education side is just unprecedented. And uh, he really has, not a lot of people know this about him, I think, but he has the engineering background. He understands this stuff down to its absolute core. Um, and he, you know, the best things I hear him talk about is when he kind of can debate, you know, Ethereum versus Bitcoin, those kind of discussions. And, and on our show, you don't get that opportunity a lot because he's being the polite host and letting others speak. But he, um, he's just a, 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 you know, a titan. I would say in this in this space. Uh, you're you're preaching to two guys who uh, fangirl anytime they hear a new Preston Pish conversation. The text conversations back and forth between Chris and I, uh, you would genuinely think it was like two girls talking about Justin Bieber. <laughs> You know, um, yeah, it was, it was funny. Cause I actually convinced Preston to come to last year. I was like, Hey, you got to come to this. And he was like, no, I don't need, I was like, you have to be there. It's the <laughs> biggest Bitcoin conference. And he was like, really? I was like, yes, you have to be there. And he brought his two daughters, um, to the event. And I think they experienced something really interesting, which is people fangirling or, you know, on Preston about Bitcoin and just the two daughters seeing that where they were like, 
what is happening? <laughs> That's cool. It's really fun to see. Yeah, it's fun to see. Um, will your wife be joining you as well? She have will. You- we're, yeah, this year we're bringing the whole family down actually. So it's going to nice. be a lot of fun. Yeah. Right, have you prepped them for sort of what the uh, cult of Bitcoin looks like a little bit? <laughs> I think she knows. I, I mean, I think uh, my wife is obviously very bullish on Bitcoin too. Uh, but she, yeah, I don't know if anything can prepare you for exactly what you're going to see while you're there. I mean, my dad lives in Miami. So uh, I rode with him to the conference last year. And he was like, yeah, I'm just taking you to this little conference. And uh, man, there was like a 10 mile line of people trying to get into this building. I mean, it was like blocks and blocks. He, he was like, I mean, that turned him onto Bitcoin when he saw that crowd. You know, He was like, okay, w- what is this thing? <laughs> you know, what are you doing? So um, I don't think anything can really prepare you. And I expect this year will be even bigger than last. We'll uh, caveat that we, we fixed the line issues this year for everyone that's okay. attending the conference. I know we had P on earlier. He's the programmer for the conference. And uh, he said that is that issue is resolved this year. So giving everyone a heads up. Well, uh, to that point, just, I mean, what was so fascinating about that is when you saw that line, you're like, oh my gosh, no one's going to be in the room, you know, to hear our panel. And we got in the room, the room was packed. I mean, so that, that was, I know we went way over capacity last year, right? So that was like excess capacity. What we were seeing, it's insane. Just so you can mentally prepare for this, the main stage room you will be hosting a panel um, is roughly eight times larger than the main stage room last year. (laughs) So, uh, you know, imagine everyone in their underwear. It's just you and the guys up on stage. We'll get you loose playing some guitar beforehand. It'll be be all good. Um, Oh my gosh. What was your favorite highlight from last year beyond just these moments with your family or with Preston? Yeah. Was there a speech in particular? There, there was. I mean, for me, uh, it was Jack Dorsey and it was, it was mainly just his level of conviction. I don't, I don't even know if anyone was really quite prepared to see, right? I mean, he, he was so matter of fact in his conviction in Bitcoin um, that that was eye-opening in a lot of ways. And I think carried the most weight of the conference. I mean, I think that the El Salvador announcement obviously was a major step forward, but um, having someone as powerful and, and uh, influential as, as Jack um, basically saying that Bitcoin is the most important thing that he can focus his attention on. Um, I think that was the major headline of last year. Love that. Uh, he will unfortunately be missed. I'm sorry to be the one to break the, be the bear. I saw that. Yeah, no worries. <laughs> I saw I'm that. So, I'm sorry. Um, how busy building? Yeah. <laughs> however, he gave us Aaron Rodgers and yeah. o- Odell Beckham Jr. So, like, on paper, as far as like a big, like, I still have my Bitcoin. Actually, I found this the other day. I gotta, I gotta dox my room to show this to people, but I have a Jack Dorsey trading card from last year's Bitcoin conference, and it is the most absurd looking picture of Jack Dorsey. <laughs> Um, but guys, you know, the drill use code YT mag, get 10% off your commerce tickets. Trey, this has been an absolute blast. Like talking to an old friend. Um, I don't want to steal more of your time. I know you have a ton on your plate. Where can our listeners, where can our viewers find and learn more about you? Yeah. So I would definitely encourage everybody to check out the investors podcast network as a whole. There's multiple shows, um, on the network. Mine is called we study billionaires. Um, we do have quite a few billionaires that frequent the show. Ray Dalio is a recent guest and there's a few others. Um, so Howard Marks, you know, so there's a lot of content there and, um, 
And if you're curious about kombucha, go to betterbooch.com. Check it out. Thank you.